There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg Kruminski and Colin Andrews. And Greg, last week's episode, we talked about market drawdowns, what to do or not to do, discussing the difference between a marathon and a sprint. And we both came to the conclusion that we would catch Usain Bolt at the one mile marker, but he would crush us in the first hundred meters. Speak for yourself. I don't think I'll be anywhere near him at the one mile marker either. (laughs) Well, you could get on like a skateboard or something and try to keep up. But today we're carrying on with this theme a little bit about what to do and not to do. And we've got Penny Phillips joining us. And Penny is from New York City, where she's the founder of Thrivos Consulting. And Penny, I understand the mission statement of Thrivos is to support financial firms and advisors as they embrace change and discover new ways to thrive. Sounds pretty cool. Yes, it does. Yes. Good to be here. Hi, guys. Hello. Now, Penny, you are in Queens, you just mentioned earlier before we started, and you're just mentioning the weather and you're getting very Canadian-like weather today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We got two feet of snow and I mentioned to you, one of our former team members was in Calgary. So she would always hop on videos with us and tell us how it was snowing and she was freezing and we were always nice and toasty here. Well, the tables have turned today. So we're under two feet of snow. Actually, my next door neighbor moved to New York about, when was Hurricane Sandy? Was that seven years ago? Wow, it was. It was about seven years ago. So Hurricane Sandy hit on, I believe on like a Sunday. My neighbor moved to New York on Saturday of that year. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Welcome to New York. (laughs) That's how we do it here in New York. We just Welcome people with open arms. <laughs> go big. You go big. Yeah. So Penny, tell us a little bit about your story. Like, how did you end up where you are today? I'll make it a short story because I can talk for days and days. I started in the financial services industry at, at an asset management company. They were a subsidiary of an insurance company. So Mainstay Investments was a firm and I started out in sales. Uh, selling mutual funds to financial advisors. And I quickly realized I hated doing that work, but (laughs) I really enjoyed interacting with advisors. And I was far more interested in the way advisors built their businesses, the infrastructure and their teams, and the challenges that they faced just as business leaders, rather than what they were selling or positioning to clients. And so make a long story short, I transitioned into consulting and consulted in-house for a couple of firms here in the US. And then about four years ago, I decided to go out on my own and launch a consulting business, essentially doing the same work I had been doing for firms, but now for myself. And my thinking at the time, guys, was that a couple of things. Number one, as an industry, and no offense to anyone listening, the consulting space is very much like the advisor space. It's predominantly middle-aged 
white male consultants speaking to middle-aged white male advisors. And our industry is at a turning point where we have a ton of different profiles of advisors entering the business. Gen Y and Gen Z looks and acts totally different than the traditional advisor. And I felt like I needed to build a firm that understood the traditional learnings in our business, but also helped folks think differently and really focus on the future versus where we've been. I just posted something on LinkedIn yesterday. I think people are obsessed with what was going on 40, 50 years ago. And my message is like, it's great to talk about what worked, but computers weren't even prevalent back then. So like, we have to talk about, (laughs) we have to get in 2020 and beyond. And so that's why I wanted to build a firm. And we've had a great run the last four years. It's been a lot of fun. Now, Greg has a background in computers he could share with you that might highlight exactly (laughs) what you're talking about. Greg, do you want to share your background? I'll tell you my background. I was coming out of high school, which was a long, long time ago. I took a little computer class. I thought this could be interesting. And so coming out of high school, my first year university, I was in an honors computer science program. So aging myself, I'll tell you that was 1971, but I didn't stay in it. And as I try not to tell all my clients is I just didn't see a future in it. So I changed directions. <laughs> so, okay. Missed opportunities, well, right? Slightly, slightly, but that's okay. Yeah. So I just became obsessed with looking at what the best in the business were doing, which advisors thrived versus plateaued. And I really became kind of obsessed with helping firms think differently about the business and about how they were building. And you've seen obviously a lot of evolution, as you just mentioned. A few decades ago, advisors would do things like share one computer with two advisors on a rotating platform between desks. That was a real thing, by the way. And today it's obviously a lot different, but Greg, where should we go with this, this talk about evolution? I started about 25 years ago in this business, Penny, and we did things a lot differently back then. It was really more about product and performance. Discount brokerages were just in their infancy. And so it was a captive market. If an investor wanted to trade stocks, they had to call an advisor or a broker, I guess, in those days. And it was all about trade execution and trying to come up with the best stock recommendations for your clients because you lived or died on the quality of your stock pick. And clearly a lot's changed since then. What do you think have been the major changes that have benefited investors the most in this evolution of the advice industry? Wow, that's interesting. So benefited, I usually get asked, what do you think has negatively impacted the advisor business model? So it's a slightly different question, but I think ultimately the answer is the same. The advent of technology and AI and information has made it easier for people in some ways to have access to advice and guidance. I mean, if you think about the financial services industry years ago, it was a certain type of person who had a certain amount of money to invest were the ones who worked with you know, a broker or financial professional. And the way the industry's changed to move more towards be less product-oriented and more planning-oriented and now more advice-oriented, I think it's given a lot of people access to our industry who may not have had access years and years ago. The downside to it has been that it's changed the advisory business model. It's become increasingly more difficult for advisors to build profitable businesses because the margins have changed. Anybody who's been in the business for a long time knows that it's become more expensive to run the business and more difficult to generate revenue because you're not 
selling a product for a commission anymore in some cases. And so it's sort of fascinating what's happened within many of our lifetimes in this business. How do you think that relates to the end user though, the investor? Let's take that side of the equation. I often say this. I think at this point, the end consumer, where we're at right now, and in the States and in Canada, we're in similar positions, although I will say Canada is a little bit behind in terms of the robo-advisor sort of prevalence. The end consumer is being forced now to make a choice between lowest cost or highest value. And so as the end consumer has experienced these changes in the business, especially with technology and robo platforms and the way in which the industry is defining what advice means and what investment management means, the user is basically saying, like, I can get a really great experience with a robo platform or some tech platform, and I don't have to pay a whole lot of money from that. And so if I'm going to be working with an individual advisor, a human being, who maybe runs their business in a little bit of an old school way and doesn't have as good of a user experience as these tech platforms, I need to be getting a whole lot of value from that experience if I'm going to stick to that advisor. And so in some ways, it's been positive because the consumer is now demanding a better experience from the advisors and the big firms, which is forcing them to change. But I think in some cases, it's made the end user think, gosh, why am I paying so much? for an advisor and not getting a whole lot of value when I can just do this myself on here in the States. Now, Robinhood is the big craze, but it's wealth or whatever it is. And Greg and I have talked about this lots over the past, obviously not with you, but the whole idea of executing a trade, just the idea of buying a stock or selling a stock or a fund for that matter, ETF, is pretty straightforward, pretty easy to do. It's basically free to trade now. In Canada too, like in Canada, it might cost you what, Greg, like seven bucks or something to make a trade. Very inexpensive. Yeah, Yeah. very. That's right. So the idea of building a platform that's focused on trading and finding the best stocks out there just seems like such a thing that was 20 years ago when two people were sharing a computer screen that was rolling back and forth and very few people had access to things like quote screens. I mean, to me, it's kind of like when you go online, if I have an owie. I don't know how else to say it. If I have an owie, I can Google it online and I can figure out pretty quickly that I'm either having a heart attack or have cancer because it always leads down that path whenever you look at anything (laughs) health-related online. So a little information might be a little bit too much for some people when it comes to just investment management versus an actual experience, would you say? I completely agree. And I think if you follow the robo platforms, maybe 10 years ago, and I'm here looking at the United States landscape, 10 years ago, that was the experience. You can go on and you can trade your own stocks and investments, something that I would not recommend, by the way, and I'll talk about that in a second. But we're at robo-advisor iteration like 4.0 now, where the experience that the user is getting with a robo or digital advice platform looks very much like the experience they would get with an advisor at a bigger firm. In other words, it's they go through a risk tolerance questionnaire and the robo is creating an asset allocation for them and rebalancing. And in some cases, the platform, the robo platform is actually assuming a persona, which this stuff is really interesting, guys. There's a new digital advice platform that was introduced in the UK. The platform will actually scan the social profiles of the user and assume a persona 
that's aligned with the user. So if I'm a user and I'm talking about the fact that I like the New York Giants football team, the robo will be able to talk to me at a very simple level about, did you see the Giants game last night? Really scary stuff, by the way. But that's how advanced we've come in the digital advice space in just 10 years. I will caveat this with saying, despite how advanced tech and AI is now, nothing has changed about the data around when people are left to their own devices to invest their own money. They almost always make terrible choices and mistakes. And so I'm still always an advocate of somebody working with an advisor, but it's interesting how the experience has advanced so much in such a short amount of time. What's interesting, Penny, when I look back to the advisor, the advice industry from when I started, which again, mid-90s, let's say, and all of the things that were supposed to be important that we contributed to our clients. So we're supposed to come up with great stock picks, of course. And that's changed. And I think over the years, the focus on performance is far less than it was in the past. And the focus is now on achieving our goals, much more of a goal-based yardstick as opposed to absolute performance. And of course, then we were also the place where you had to come to get stocks traded because you couldn't do it yourself. And so when you think of it now, I mean, as an advisor, and our goal is to obviously meet the needs of the people we serve, who are the end investors, the things that we used to stand on have become not completely irrelevant, but so much minimized relative to where it is. And so we had spoken with Tim Noonan previously of Russell Investments. I think he was the head of their strategic direction. And he said the biggest change that he's noticed over his 40 years in the business was just the knowledge gap, the narrowing of the knowledge gap between the advisor and the investor, because the investor can get all the same information that we can get. The role of the advisor has really changed. And how do you measure? How does an investor know if they have a good advisor? It doesn't come down to performance anymore. It doesn't come down to certainly stock transactions. So how does an investor know that they've got a great advisor? That's such a good question. And you hit on something so important, Greg, when I talk about the biggest change factors in our business, whether I'm talking about the advisor and consumer, you can narrow it down to two things. Number one, technology. And we talked about that. It's changed the experience. It's reduced. It's compressed margins on the infrastructure side. The second biggest change factor is demographics. And so, and you probably understand this deeply, Greg, working in this business for almost 30 years, what a client wanted when they came to an advisor 30 years ago is completely different. We don't, and I say we meaning the younger gen, so gen XYZ, we don't think in terms of a return on a stock versus some blended benchmark that nobody understands anymore. And I can go into a whole conversation about benchmarks, sure. but we don't think that way. We think, and again, I'll compare myself to my parents who were in their 70s. All they ever had their mind on was how can I save as much money to retire and never go on any vacations because I want to make sure that we have enough to... The younger gen doesn't think that way. We think about how can I experience more now? How can I feel like I'm contributing? We've switched as a consumer from a very quantitative way to think about goals to a very qualitative way. And that's especially true with the younger gen. It's not about how can I wait till I'm 65 to go on a cruise around the world? It's can I afford to live in Thailand for two weeks and do my work from there? So our thinking about what we want has changed. 
And I think, and I say this to advisors all the time, when you're having the traditional review meeting discussion with a client, you should be re-articulating back to them what they articulated to you at the very beginning of your engagement about what they want, what they want to feel. Ask clients, what do you want to feel after a year of working together, after five years of working together? And then six months in, what are you feeling now? Or you described wanting to feel empowered around your finances. That's how the consumer is now judging success. Am I feeling and experiencing the things that I want to by engaging with this service provider as the consumer? And by the way, that's no different than what companies outside of our industry are asking. What does the consumer want to feel and experience? If they're feeling and experiencing that, we're going to know it because they're going to refer, they're going to still pay their subscriptions, et cetera, et cetera. So we can learn a lot actually by looking at other industries and the way they rate success with their consumers. I know that a company that is out there, it's a very large company, it's called Apple. Now I have to preface this by saying, we're not saying that somebody should go buy Apple stock or supporting them at all. We're just talking about them as a company. They just happen to be a fairly large company. They have spent a lot of time on the client experience, even to the point where their packaging has to come out in a certain way. There has to be a certain feel when you open the box. Everything has to be tucked in a certain way. Like I don't think the end user really appreciates how much effort they put into that to get that feel for them. So to me, it feels like our industry is sort of headed that direction, that it's all of those things happening behind the scenes to create this utopian experience for investors outside of just what stock to buy or bond to buy. A hundred percent. And Apple's a great case study because they intentionally package their products. And by the way, the reason why Apple's arguably the best case study as it relates to client experience and branding is because if you were to ask somebody to describe Apple products or the experience of receiving an Apple products, we'd all answer the same way. Sleek, easy to use, easy to understand, intuitive, beautiful. We'd use the same words. They actually created the packaging the way they did so that people would go on YouTube. Somebody started this at Apple. Like The experience of opening your Apple package is a social media viral thing. I don't know how to describe it. So people literally will go online and record themselves sort of unpackaging this Apple product. That's intentional. And I think you've seen that a little bit in our industry. In the U.S. on the East Coast, we have a Capital One bank. A couple of years ago, they transitioned to its traditional bank branches. They transitioned to Capital One cafes. So the literal bank branch was turned into what looked and felt like a Starbucks cafe. And people were encouraged to come in. They set up a room in the back, especially the branches in Manhattan, where there were yoga classes going on. And so think about this. They are targeting a younger demographic. They are targeting the millennial entrepreneur who works in the city and has very little time to get their finances in order. But they know that these people are likely going to visit a bank branch to take out money or deposit money or whatever. And so they now have young people going in there to hang out, to in between on their lunch break, go do a yoga class. This has nothing to do with wealth management, guys. And everything to do with the person is now hooked on the experience. The problem with individual advisors in many cases is that they work within big broker dealers or here in the States or firms, and it's difficult for them to do that and be compliant as well. (laughs) Well, that's interesting because, Greg, 
I think Penny's just given us a great idea of our next venture in our foray here is we can offer our clients a quick Ashtanga or Hatha yoga class while sipping on their pumpkin spice latte and going through their asset allocation and diversification models. That's perfect. <laughs> we'll run that by compliance. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure it'll be exactly. easy to get through. There's other ways you can do that. If your demographic, your target demographic is the younger female entrepreneur, then and pre-COVID, one thing I was suggesting is give them the option to do virtual reviews. Ship them when they're onboarded a really nice journal and planner. Somebody like me who's an entrepreneur and is involved in a whole bunch of stuff, I would love to get something like that from someone who's advising me because they thought about something that I would find useful and that's sort of tied to my psychographic profile. So I challenge advisors to think of small ways in which they can create that without having to get certified as a yoga instructor, Greg, which I don't (laughs) see you doing. Hey, actually, Greg does yoga. (laughs) You do not know this. Sadly, that's true. And I do yoga just so I can continue to stand up straight when I walk. (laughs) Well, Colin, I think you had some other specific questions for Penny that may even take us slightly out of the realm of what advisors can do to offer better client service. I do. I do. I want to go through a speed round with you, Penny. We've never done this before. I've heard it on some other podcasts. I thought it'd be kind of fun to go through with you. But before we get into that, I do have one sort of last question as it relates to our discussion so far. You talked about the broker dealer or the product manufacturer, the advisor, the end user. And to me, there's like this compound value chain that's created to do that. How important is trust at every stop along that value chain? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I'll answer it this way. There was a study done by, I can't remember the details around it, but it was right after the financial crisis and the people were asked to rank certain industries and the financial services industry was ranked lower than Congress at the time, which is saying a lot. <laughs> well, wait, like current Congress or? <laughs> oh, this was in like, oh, wait, oh, nine. Who knows what it would be right now, but it was ranked like the financial services profession broadly. And of course, this is after Madoff and all that stuff. And, but when asked the same group, What's your relationship like with your finance or how would you rate your financial advisor? People were back, oh no, not my guy. I trust my person. No, my guy's good. It's the industry. And so that taught me as a coach and consultant so much about number one, the importance of trust and how, despite maybe being part of an industry that's changing and that people distrust broadly, the individual trust that you create, you as a human being with the human being at the other end of the conversation how powerful that is. I just thought that was interesting. It's obviously critically important, but I think even if people don't trust the firm or the industry, they can still trust you. And that's what keeps them as a client for the individual Interesting. That's fascinating, isn't it? That there would be this image of an industry as a whole, but not applied to your own interactions. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. Well, that was deep and profound, and I loved it. And now we're going to go to something that's not so deep or profound, but fun. So this is an easy one I'm going to start you off with. What do you do for fun when you're not working on Thrivos or any of your other business ventures? Because, by the way, I suck at round robin stuff because I talk too much. I'm supposed <laughs> to answer answer. I'm already <laughs> messing it up. I hang out with my family. I have a big fat Greek family here in New York. We're all five minutes from each other. So Literally, it's seeing them and having them drive me crazy. That's pretty cool, though. 
I'm not Greek, but I have Greek friends. And it seems like every Greek family is a big Greek family that they all hang out. Is that just a thing? It's a thing. It's a gift and a curse. But a lot of us are first generation. I'm first generation American. So the culture is so strong still. You still do all the traditions and you're together all the time. And it's nice. It's really nice. Very nice. What part of Greece did your family come from? My mother was born in Sparta. So the movie 300, those are my ancestors directly. And my father's from Chios, which is an island. Cool. Okay, totally different. Any books you're reading right now? Oh my gosh. I'm notoriously always reading a million books. I am actually reading, and now I'm not going to, it's one of the most famous business books. People compare it to The Secret, but it's not. It was written in 1932. Oh my gosh. It'll come later. Any fiction books? Do you read fiction or just nonfiction? I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. I love memoirs. I love reading business books. Michael Lewis. I'm always reading a whole lot of random stuff. And I will tell you guys, I'm notorious for reading a first and last chapter and then saying I read the (laughs) (laughs) And any shows that you're watching these days, Netflix or any of those? Oh my gosh. I've watched everything. We've been home for (laughs) nine months. I just watched The Queen's Gambit, which was really good. Amazing. And The Undoing. I don't know if anybody watched that. Very, very good. Greg, didn't you watch The Undoing? Weren't you talking about that one? The Undoing was an excellent show. Yeah, really well done. And yeah. as a New Yorker, I guess it just felt like home too. Yeah, the murder. And, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. Okay, now we're going to get Canadian content specific on you. Now, no pressure. It's just for fun. How do you spell Saskatchewan? Because Greg and I are both from Saskatchewan. Take a stab at it. A, oh, A. Nope. S A S. Q-U-E. Nope, stop there. Q-U-A. <laughs> no Q, it's a K. <laughs> close enough, close enough. That was a hard one. That's actually an unfair question to ask. However, on that note, do you wear a toque in winter? I have no clue what that is, but if it's a jacket, No, yes. no, no, no. Do you wear a beanie in your winter? No. Okay. You know that thing that has a pom-pom at the top and it's like yeah. knitted? It's called a toque here in Canada. <laughs> do you drink pop? I actually do not. And we call it soda. Ah, right. you caught on. Good, good, good. <laughs> good, good. I'm just having fun with this because I have to. Because My wife's American, by the way. My father-in-law's American. I went to school in the US for a little bit. So I like to have fun with these things. We were in Arizona last year, pre-COVID, of course. I went to Fry's grocery store and I said to the this guy in the aisle, hey, where's your craft dinner? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Do you know what craft dinner is? Is that a TV dinner? It's craft macaroni and cheese. Oh. So we call it craft dinner or KD, but for whatever reason, that has only stayed in Canada. And I won't bug you with too many more of these, just a couple more. Do you ever wear a bunny hug? Jeez, oh, what the heck is that? Oh, I, I love have... it. And you know what? I feel bad because all my Canadian clients are going to be so disappointed in me because I spent a <laughs> tremendous amount of time in Canada. I have no clue well, what you're talking about. Don't feel bad about the bunny hug unless you're specifically from Saskatchewan <laughs> from 1990 on. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> what is that? It's a hooded sweatshirt. And for whatever reason in Saskatchewan, it's just a hooded sweatshirt with the pocket at the front. It's called a bunny hug in Saskatchewan. And lastly... Have you ever witnessed or been part of a sorry fight? This is a very Canadian thing. Sorry if it offends you that I'm asking this. Sorry, Greg? 
Oh, I'm sorry. It's entirely my fault. No, no you go no, ahead. Sorry, I shouldn't I have asked the question. Sorry about that. You're doing great. Sorry, I apologize. I think we're taking all of Penny's time here. <laughs> my apologies. I'm a New Yorker. You think I've ever been involved in a sorry fight? I just <laughs> no way. <laughs> well, you did great. I know those were unfair questions, but they were just for fun. By the way, the book Think and Grow Rich. It's Think and Grow me. Rich. Oh, yes. Think and Grow Rich. Yes. Awesome. I see. I knew it would come back. I just finished a book called The Downfall of Money. Have you ever read that one? I have not. No. I finished reading My Age of Anxiety, which is a book about like just being neurotic. But And then I started thinking Grow Rich. So those have been my two books. <laughs> <Those are> like <laughs> extremes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know a little bit more about me now, clearly. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, listen, Penny, thanks so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you. This is fun. It was a lot of fun and we really appreciate you being on the show and maybe someday we can have you back and we can quiz you with some other Saskatchewan terms. I'm going to quiz you with some Greek stuff. That's going to be our next, it's Suvlaki, like baklava, all this stuff. That's what I'm going to do next time. Bring right it on. Bring okay. It. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having me. That conversation, Greg, was a lot of fun. It was great to get some insight from Penny Phillips on the industry and on what a bunny hug was. Well, that's right. And as I mentioned, even I, having been from Saskatchewan, was never aware of what a bunny hug was. So (laughs) I think we've all learned something today. Thank you very much. I didn't mean to beat her up too much on some of those questions. There was a couple more I wanted to ask, things like ketchup potato chips, which is a very Canadian thing that doesn't translate to the U.S. and You will not find those in the States, that's correct. No, you cannot sit on your Chesterfield eating ketchup potato chips while your craft dinner is cooking in the States. None of that would relate. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining well, us today. Well, it was good. I just wanted to say that it's good to have another perspective. We've talked now to several people who are looking at our business from the standpoint of what can the advisor do to better address the needs of the investor. So it was great to have her, and I look forward to having more people in the industry that have that approach or that mindset. Exactly. And not so laser-focused on, I don't know, dividend stocks, price earnings, multiples, and corporate earnings. Exactly. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. And next time we will get into, I know what we're doing next time. Next time we're talking about top stock tips or picks for the upcoming new year. It's that time of year, isn't it? The lists are coming out. All right. That's great. Till next time. Look forward to it next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.